my heart just like aches when I hear this. <laughs> it aches because of, you know, my own experiences or also just the women that, that I talk to on an everyday basis that are mm-hmm. selling within organizations, right? I feel like we're finally addressing our collective trauma and calling it out as such. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I feel like the past, the strategy was just to grin and bear it and to play along. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you for how many years I pretended to like sports to blend in mm-hmm. or I hid my tattoos. There was even a point where I wouldn't wear a lot of jewelry because I was afraid of getting sexually harassed by clients, right? And I feel like this is a moment in time if from the Me Too movement, also just from, I think, a lot of people, um, especially more content creators on LinkedIn, being very open, transparent, and also just the reflection, the time for reflection we've all had over COVID to really finally sit down and address this trauma for what it is. And it can be very painful to do that. But ultimately, it can be really helpful because I think a lot of men in sales just didn't know that we were experiencing a lot of these things because we weren't sharing it for so long. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Revenue Rail Hotline. I'm Amy Rahovchek. More importantly, I'm very excited that you decided to join us today, friend. I know you've got a ton of options and I appreciate you. This is a show about all the hard and uncomfortable conversations that arise while generating revenue and how to think or rethink what we're doing, why we're doing it, and then, of course, how to execute differently. And like I said, I'm happy you decided to come along for the ride. That was Meg Nishak. Meg is the founder and CEO of Path to Presidents Club. She's one of the most competent and and gifted sales enablers that I know. And frankly, one of the very few humans whose content speaks to the elite seller or those that are maybe a little bit further along in their career and, you know, pursuing that level of mastery. Again, a rare, a rare human being indeed. Don't be fooled about the beginning clip there. It was actually a really hard decision to choose which one to go with because we spent the first half of the conversation talking about discovery and how you know, focusing in on really leveling up your abilities in in that capacity, which by the way, friends, discovery is a period that never ends while selling, right? Think about that, how silly or ridiculous it is. What, are we just gonna stop being curious or asking questions just because some arbitrary stage in the CRM? But anyway, so yeah, this, this episode is very prescriptive in that sense, right? Helping to think through which skills to work on next when you've already figured it all out. And then we get even realer and talk about our experiences selling while woman. And I really hope that you come along for the ride. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you listen um, so you can be reminded every time an episode drops. And, you know, do me a favor, friends. Don't don't tell anybody about the show. Like, nobody. Let's, let's keep this one our little secret. All right, all. I'm Amy Rahubchek. This is the Revenue Rail Hotline. Enjoy. Megan Mishak, welcome to the Revenue Rail Hotline, friend. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, always. I'm so damn excited about this. Okay, Meg, before we get started, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do every day? Yeah, so I am Megan Mishak, the um, founder of a company called the Path to Presidents Club. And my main mission is to help salespeople thrive. I came from the world of sales. I've actually been in sales since I was 16 years old. I haven't done any other job. Mm-hmm. I've been in sales leadership, sales training, sales enablement before it was a really cool and, and Trendy, hip job like it is. Yes, <laughs> yep, exactly. So I've kind of seen every aspect of sales and I'm excited to talk in this show because I think there's a lot of things that I see in the world of sales that hinder people from actually learning, growing and succeeding, especially in elite sales. I found a lot of people didn't know, even like the top sales people didn't know why 
why they were experiencing success. And there's not as many people out there that are actually able to teach other people how to succeed in these worlds, to break down really complex, challenging concepts and really help people grow. So it's really my my mission and my purpose to help get people to what we call President's Club, right? Which this is usually an incentive trip, but I do think it really uh, represents mastery in sales, which is a field that um, a lot of people assume great people, great salespeople are just born, but it's my experience that they're made. So excited to help people learn, grow, and succeed at the highest levels. Listeners, there are very few people that I would count when I look at their content, when I look at what they're producing, what they're saying, what they're teaching, and have nothing but like, yep, yep. Like, yes, this person knows what the hell they're talking about. Megan is absolutely in this category, listener friends. So like that's, you could just take that one to the bank, truly. And Meg, I love your your font on the website, by the way. I meant to ask you, it looks beautiful. So listeners, so you can go ahead and, and head on over to the website too, to see what I'm talking about. It'll be linked in the show notes. All right, Meg. So let's talk about this idea of like not understanding which skills to pursue or develop as not well, it could be for a new seller, but maybe somebody that's been around for at least a year and is looking to level up because I too have, have noticed this as well. And so I guess like, how would I frame this as a, as a question? How do you uncover or how do you help someone identify what to focus on or where there are opportunities to level up, you know, their, their sales approach, let's say, or approach to sales? Oof, it is a good question. And it's one of the hardest, right? Because we've been talking a lot about how we have all of these new fancy systems that promise to tell us exactly where to focus and what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. And a lot of the data, and especially even the things that you hear from your manager, if you ask them, hey, tell me a little bit uh, about where I can improve. A lot of these are not cut and dry. So um, a good example is a lot of people come to me and they're like, hey, I'm really struggling to close deals. I just get to proposal and people just drop off, mm. right? And I think a lot of the times they assume that, oh, it must, it must be a pricing issue. Yeah. yeah. It's never, pri- I mean, okay, it could be pricing. Uh, it's almost never pricing. Right. It's usually discovery because right. we haven't built enough value or urgency to justify them buying or, you know, investing, they don't see the value of, um, the cost versus the expected benefit. Or a lot of times this happens where they're like, Oh Meg, actually, no, that never happens to me. People don't ghost. They just don't talk to me for a month. And then they come back and they're like, Oh yeah, now is good. Hmm. And I'm like, we also don't want that. Mm -hmm. So we not only need to, you know, encourage people to see the value, but also to move quickly. And so I think when we think about where to improve, it it definitely is custom per seller, right? There's some people that are incredible on certain things and, and struggle in other areas. So what I would recommend, and also this is a very different conversation if you're just starting out in your sales career, which yeah. is actually easier from that perspective, right. um, just start with the sales process, right? learn discovery. I mean, learn prospecting first, master prospecting, then learn discovery and kind of go through the process. But for senior sellers, it's a lot harder. Um, Okay. So I love mm -hmm. that. I'm with you on the, it's easier for new people. I I get up on the soapbox about Pareto's principle or the 80-20 rule, right? Why don't we teach the sellers about this, right? It's just this concept, friends, that you're going to get 80% of your results from 20% of your activities. And really this applies for, you know, at any point in your career, but your job, especially at the beginning is to figure out what are your 20 percenters? What are the 20% actions that you're doing that are yielding you 80% of those results? All right. But yeah. Meg, like, I, I, I love this idea of like value-based discovery. And it was something that came up on the episode, the second episode that you did on blissful prospecting with Jason Bay. This idea that I, I think there was a poll at the beginning of the, the, the talk that you gave and it asked the crowd, like, why do you feel like your deals are ghosting you? And the two answers that came back, like the top two poll answers were looping in the exec sponsors and converting the demo into like a 
full-fledged motion. And while mm-hmm. I would like, I really want to dig into like why people commingle the concept of discovery and demo, which are two separate things, friends. And if you want to be really particular, there's more than one type of demo. You've got this high level spin through, and then you've got the deep dive that you do ideally with teams of people. But more specifically, I think that one of the reasons why AEs are struggling hard, specifically on the executive sponsor front, mm-hmm. is because they haven't gotten their skills up to their conversational skills up to a point where they're actually able to bring value to that conversation said differently, more business acumen. Yeah, it's a great point. I actually was just talking to a seller right before this meeting and he's like, Megan, I I'm just moving into enterprise for the first time. And can you tell me a little bit more around how I should change my approach to better appeal to enterprise? And we, we went, dug into his approach a little bit. Right. And I was like, listen, you have a great foundation. Yeah. I work with a lot of reps and I'm like, Ooh, where do we start? Right. But especially if you're (laughs) even great at selling, I think a lot of times you're, um, you're assuming that you don't need to improve, but there's so much room for opportunity to, to change, to go deeper. And I feel like a lot of times it's this pull between your manager and the sales process pulling you to move faster, rush to get through discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Basically like I always tell people too, you're just like rushing to close lost in a lot of times. Yeah. But if you spend more time in discovery, it's the one skill that I find has such an incredible impact at every stage of the process. Right. Discovery is the foundation. You're literally making an investment that will help you the entire time. So, um, when we think about discovery, I do think it's, it's, a blend of basic conversational skills, right? Open-ended questions, like those things. But the harder part is once you master those, it is bringing the business acumen. And what I mean by that is, um, I would, I'm super curious what you think, how you define that. But like, Mm -hmm. for me, it's a few things. It's how do I understand my clients in, in a deep enough way in order to to do two things, right? How can I speak in their language and build trust with them? And how can I also form better and more strategic hypotheses around how I can help them? And when I can help yeah. them. And there's almost a third one, which is also like asking better questions too on a very tactical front. Yeah. It's like, and it doesn't even have to be better questions, like mm-hmm. very, very nuanced, but like one of my favorite ways to start discovery Uh, with a new person was to ask, like, how's business? And that question really, it helped me on two fronts. One, they were able, well, multiple fronts. They took the conversation in whatever direction they wanted to take it in, right? Yeah. Two, I got to listen to where they were currently at on their own business acumen skills, right? Because not all professionals understand the nuances of P&L, let's just say, right? Your profit and loss statement. Um, But from a timing perspective or using the business acumen to open opportunities, like one of the things that I used to reverse engineer once I figured out or understood the corporate budget cycle is when to reach out. Like when when are they doing their first draft yep. on their budget? When do they submit it to their boss? Which by the way, friends, when you submit your budget to your boss, there are really only two things that happen at that point, right? Generally, the boss wants more revenue for less money, less cost, right? Yeah. And so it's there's always an, an iteration there. And so you can time it properly based on when somebody's budget, like which accounting mm-hmm. calendar somebody is working off of. But anyway... Like I, I could do this all day, but just like basic, a basic understanding that it, you've got top line revenue, right? Yeah. And then you've got your cost, the things that go into, you know, bringing in that revenue that spread is called profits. And mm-hmm. there are two different ways to reduce costs. The one is more common, everybody understands or talks about, and that is to cut slash, right? Cut mm-hmm. cost. But the second is AKA everything that happened over COVID, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But the second is actually, it's driven by efficiency and it's born out of innovation. Yeah. And it's looking at your existing tech stack as an example and figuring out how to get more for less. But anyway, I'd like to see more business acumen on our sales boss front too. But I feel like that's a yeah. conversation for a different oh, that's, day. That's a big <laughs> one. But I, so I think that even for me, I simplify this. I always tell people, 
the easiest way to understand the value to your customers is a concept I called value drivers. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you sell, and I usually actually convince people of this by doing like a big exercise, like list out your clients' gains and pains. Mm-hmm. And I ask them, are there any patterns or buckets you recognize? And they're like, oh, you know, there, there seemed to be one focused around revenue, right? Like how do we make money or increase performance or increase results? Mm-hmm. There's also, there's one that, you know, focuses a lot on, uh, on workflows and time management. I call that efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we save time, save money? Um, how can we increase also, it, how can we increase output by making it faster? Mm-hmm. There's also usually one focused on customer experience. Mm-hmm. And that can be customer loyalty or customer like brand perception or brand value. Mm-hmm especially important when we think about <laughs> the world of social media yeah. and how important brand value is in the current world. And there's also one that is important to some businesses, which is risk and compliance. Mm-hmm. And so if we simplify it out to those four buckets, um, this is one thing I see a lot of salespeople missing, right? Going from g- a good salesperson to a great salesperson. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of salespeople focus so much on immediate pains and gains right? They ask like one question, Hey, tell me a little bit more about what you're struggling with. And the client says, Oh, well, you know, this is our biggest priority. And they're like, great, we can solve that. Let me tell you how, and let's go get to the demo. Right. But what I focus on is going a lot deeper and going broader with the Mm -hmm. value. And instead of just focusing on those immediate pains, which that's really fantastic, right? There's some urgency, there's some really prioritized pain to solve or gains to achieve or both then you can absolutely get deals done in that way. But when it goes to how can we increase both the impact we have on clients, how can we increase the um, like sell bigger and better deals? Mm-hmm. It's going further. And one thing I, I heard it from you is like, I think that business acumen, it also it not only impacts the questions we ask, because I actually really like the question you ask. It's because it's simple. So many times salespeople are like, uh, they ask a question like this, hello. So like, usually, uh, you know, this is how we help. Would that be valuable to you? Yes or no. And they're like, binary questions. <laughs> they're like, uh, sure. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, check mark found pain. They want our service. I'm like, that's, that's not pain. Right. Yeah, well, I think we did that to ourselves with all the band, like the <laughs> ridiculousness. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. And so like, I agree with all these things and I'm like, I'm really, I'm, I'm sad that I'm going to pivot us here or about to, no I'm going to yeah. give you the final word, but listeners for anybody that is interested in like a, a deeper dive around discovery. I love the Jeff Bajoric episode, the Jeff Bajoric does discovery, which is episode four. And Meg, he, he's like right with you. I didn't believe him at he's the time. This too. was last oh, year. Yeah, no, he was talking about how everybody's in such a rush to get through to yeah. discovery so they could actually get to the selling part, which I didn't see it at the time, but I think the two of you were spot on. So that's a great episode. And then I'm going to link the Jason Bay Blissful Prospecting because uh, Meg and Jason go deep into, again, how to get past the, you know, looping in more executive sponsors early on. Mm-hmm. And of course, converting more opportunities to survive past the demo stage, let's just say. Okay. For sure. Meg, let's talk about selling mall woman. I was telling you early, my my heart just like aches when I hear this. <laughs> it aches because of, you know, my own experiences or also just the women that, that I talk to on an everyday basis that are mm-hmm. selling within organizations, right? Um, I feel like we're finally addressing our collective trauma and calling it out as such. Mm. I don't know about you, but like the past, uh, I feel like the past, there were a lot of women in sales who just, it was just, the strategy was just to grin and bear it and to play along. Mm. I cannot tell you for how many years I pretended to like sports to blend in, Mm -hmm. or I hid my tattoos, or I, there was even a point where I wouldn't wear a lot of jewelry because I was afraid of getting sexually harassed by clients. Right. And I feel like this is a moment in time if from the Me Too movement, also just from, I think, a lot of people, um, especially more content creators on LinkedIn, being very open, transparent, and also just the reflection, the time for reflection we've all had over COVID to really finally sit down and address this trauma for what it is. And it can be very painful to do that. 
but ultimately it can be really helpful. Cause I think a lot of men in sales just didn't know that we were experiencing a lot of these things because we, we weren't sharing it for so long. Well, we weren't sharing it because every time we would bring it up, somebody would throw the fucking victim label at you. Or even though like if you're sharing a story, friends, where yeah. you um, recount feeling victimized in that moment because you were, um, that doesn't mean that you identify with as a victim right now. Okay. So Meg, like I want to start by saying that I used to think that the harm or trauma to use your word mm -hmm. that I experienced in our profession that we both love as something that was unique to our gender. And it actually like, you know, about the, that article that I was working on last year that I had to stop. But like one of the reasons that I stopped writing about gender and sales, it was another deep dive expose listeners about, which I will finish, but it was very much like that mental health article was because it was like right after George Floyd had happened. And I just, I, another big piece of it is aside from like most men didn't understand the problem and the horror stories that I was getting back from the women that I was interviewing, like sobbing every single time. Like I, I didn't want to write about just gender when we were still mm -hmm. murdering black people in this country with impunity, right? It just felt tone deaf. But anyway, so over the past year, I've realized that a lot more of us can relate to feeling harmed than just like a women, right? For example, sexual orientation, black people have experiences with code switching and mm -hmm. the hypervigilance. And so don't even get me started on intersectionality, right? So the plight of the black yeah. woman in particular, which is a yeah, um, force multiplier, right? Because you got a couple marks against you there, theoretically, and real in reality. But that said, for our purposes, gender. I remember I was in San Francisco when Me Too hit, and at that point, I hadn't seen a therapist once, right? But for me, it was like I got hit with the reality of all these experiences that I had had. And whether it's from back in the day, like people on your own team snickering about the only reason you're winning the leaders boards is yeah, who knows what you're offering on the side. Like I too, it's funny. You said you cut out the jewelry. I bought a piece of jewelry. I bought an engagement ring thinking, oh not, my a real, goodness. not a real one, not a real one. Yeah, I think it was definitely a Cracker Jack oh box goodness. shit. But like there was a period where I would go out on meetings and, and it was, it was interesting because I, I didn't realize how common this was. I I just yep. I had felt you so think it's you. Yeah, I had felt so alone in this experience. And so I too am excited that more people are talking about it. However, even last year and mm -hmm. even in the research for that article, like there's a lot of backlash in sharing these stories with your own team publicly. Mm -hmm. And so people are still like uh, you know kind of holding them close to the chest, but like what would you say to that on any front? Yeah. So I think, unfortunately, what we have on our hands is, uh, I think so many men in, in the culture are reading these stories and saying, thank God our team doesn't do that. Thank God mm -hmm. I'm not one of those men who sexually harasses my coworkers. Mm -hmm. And the issue is that I think what you've talked about too is that it's not just those bigger moments, right? Like I've been sexually harassed and assaulted by two bosses, mm -hmm. but that does not define the majority of my sales experience um, because a lot of that is just the microaggressions. And that's from mm -hmm. a lot of times, very well intending men and coworkers. And I think one of the things that we also have to realize as white women um, and just women in, in general is that we also have a lot of privilege that we also should mm -hmm. check and realize, right? I think a lot of times we're recognizing that we have had really hard experiences and that we are healing from those. And there's a lot of fight that we have in us, but I do also feel very called to also recognize the fact that I'm a white woman, which means I look around and at least when I'm in a sales role, I see a lot of other white women. But we also need to not only fight for and advocate for minorities and minorities in the very broad sense, right? Like all of the other people who don't mm. actively have a seat in the table, because I don't know about you, Amy, I've almost, I don't think I even have ever worked with a black woman in sales on any team. I have worked with Hispanic women and Indian women. And I've also been in a, like, I've, I've literally been in a around probably the same time that you mentioned the, the George Floyd murder. And 
Um, I've been in a room with sales leadership where we had a white man say, yeah, I know that we don't have any people of color on our leadership team. And like, I just look to the women that are working with me and they look at each other and like, um, I'm Hispanic and I'm Indian. Like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? And I was like, do you not know the definition of people of color? Like, I just don't think that we're doing enough to recognize our own privilege and advocating and just not only advocating, but giving them a seat at the table, right? But really reflecting on our own actions as well. And that's been hard for me. I had someone, you know, comment on some of the language that I used in training and I was defensive at first. And it took me a good week to be like, are you kidding me? I can't believe that. Like, for example, um, I had someone, I was using one graphic in a training and it was a, a gear and one of my Jewish colleagues came to me. He's like, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, like that made me feel a little uncomfortable. It looked like a swastika. And at first I was like, are you, are you kidding me? This is a gear. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I finally, I finally took note and I was like, okay, I'm being a little defensive because I'm embarrassed and I need to recognize that what might not matter to me what I look at and see a gear, right? Like the language we use. And even if we have the best of intentions or we didn't have any mal, mal intention, right? Like I wasn't looking for, <laughs> I definitely wasn't looking for icons within my little icon bank that like that looked bad to anyone or had any hidden representation, but the actions we take, the words we say, the things that we do matter. Yeah. They have an impact. And they might be interpreted very differently to different audiences. And so I think that not only do we as white women, women in general need to, you know, look at our experiences and heal from those and and try to, you know, take action to support other women in sales. We also need to realize that the way we feel is being felt by a lot of people. And so even Mm. just create, not only taking steps to hire more women in sales, but really trying to take steps to allow everyone to express what they're seeing in the space and to create more diverse and truly equitable and inclusive environments on all fronts. And I think what you mentioned too, is we need to also be comfortable calling out and calling in because I feel like we're in the world where everyone's like, we have a DEI program and I've worked at companies that had really strong DEI programs and shit is not getting better because it's all, it's always the, thank God it's not me. I, I think it, you were right to call out the initial defensiveness that you felt in the face of that particular feedback. And, and I know that you speak about feedback often in a beautiful way, especially as you've grown to perceive it differently and better. I'm reminded of Maria Brasses. She has she has a beautiful one because I she told me about it one time because we were working on something. I forget what she was working on, but I gave her some tough mm-hmm. feedback about it. And she, like in passing, like a month later, had mentioned that she had cried after the fact. And I was like, shit. Like I certainly not my intention for people to cry. Mm-hmm. You know, like that is never my goal. And she's like, no, no, no. She goes, it it was amazing, and you were right. And she goes, but here's it was a quick tier type thing, because I think about it not as feedback, but more as around like blind spots. It's either I'm going to receive this feedback or I'm going to be harboring a blind spot that I didn't know about. By definition, I am blind to it because it's me. And so that that mindset really stayed Mm -hmm. with me. And so for anybody else that's out there that's trying to think of a, a, a hack or a new thought pattern, when it comes to feedback, right? Don't think about it as feedback per se. Think about it as a blind spot that you no longer have to be shackled with and and it can, you know, but anyway. We all have different experiences. And so we're going to see things that are different. And so when we're able to let go of our rightness or the defensiveness or the Mm -hmm. dismissiveness, um, we actually will learn a tremendous amount and if I can give one point, one final point there, um, I think it's kind of funny. This relates to what we were talking about in sales, which is slowing down. And one thing I think a lot of people struggle with is that they don't give themselves enough time to process and let those emotions pass mm-hmm. before responding. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to tell everyone it is fully okay to just say, hey, 
thank you so much for that feedback. Can I have some time to process process that? Yeah. And I wish that a lot of other people would have done that when I gave them feedback, right? Because what I also find is a lot of times when we respond in defensive ways, do you think that person is encouraged to give more feedback? Absolutely Mm -mm. not. They're never going to tell you anything again. They're just going to be, they're probably just going to potentially leave the organization, feel alienated and not tell you anything. And so we need to really thank them, give them time to process. And we do want to see action eventually, even if it's like, Hey, I want to let you know, I really appreciated that feedback. Here's how I'm going to work to be better in the future, right? Like I already changed the icon in that training. And by the way, it it did hurt because I hope you know that I I wouldn't want to have you think that that was my intention. So I, I also encourage you if there are any other moments where you see things that you don't think align with my values, because I hope you know that I, I do have very strong values around diversity that you'll tell me, mm-hmm. right? Like that's such a valuable conversation, but a lot of times we react, we react. Yeah. We react in that moment. I think patients that's helped me tremendously. So I, I have ADHD hypersensitivity and it took me a while to realize that like, I just feel things deeper, you know, this is what mm-hmm. hyper, so light sound, it's just a heightened sense of whatever, fill in the blanks. Anyway, learning to pause, especially mm-hmm. in moments of anger or to walk away or to fucking do nothing. Mm-hmm. Like it seems really counterintuitive to your point, like just letting the emotions cool a little, right? Give it time yeah. to pass and allow for that objectivity to take back over because it is very difficult or arguably it's impossible to be and remain objective when really heightened emotionally, let's just say. Yeah. It is hilarious because this is a sales strategy as well, right? Um, yep. I feel like for me, this is what I tell people around objection handling. Like, hey, first step, just take a breath. (laughs) And a lot of people are so nervous that they just like, you know, stumble over their words and they are trying to interrupt and and trying to like prove the the client wrong. And this is a strategy that will help us in sales, right? Where we can, um, I mean, I actually, for objection handling, um, I teach yes and, which is a, a, yeah, it's a, um, an improv technique, right? Instead of trying to fight, actually trying to listen, to deeply pause and try to understand the client. And I think that's something we can also bring into our DEI conversations and just like more diverse conversations with all of our employees, right? Um, Instead of fighting them and proving that you're right or you didn't mean that and you're not all men, I'm not like that. Simply listen and, and really honor, acknowledge and validate that concern as well. The best practice for sales, life, and especially for working in more uh, diverse and equitable cultures. So you said something that, like, I just I like can't pass over. It's just the being assaulted by two bosses. I had so for me there was like the most egregious. Let's just say it was we did this big event at the Twenty One Club. I would do one every year, and it was like the ticket, right? Everybody wanted it, and. At the end of the day, for people that were like really great clients mm-hmm. who would, you know, refer people to me, we, I, it would continue on. And so I had gotten a van, right? A nice van to move us from the 21 club to wherever we were going for dinner. And there was like nine people. And as I'm getting out of the van, like one of the, one of my key like champion prospects, like grabbed me and pulled me onto his lap and like, kisses or tried to kiss oh me God. as everyone had gotten out. And so, but I, I, the only reason I mentioned it is, is because I had a conversation with Casey Jones one mm-hmm. time about what's worse, right? When it happens with the buyers <laughs> or when it happens with your own fucking team. And Casey was yeah. like, it is way worse when it happens with your own team, because that's yeah. supposed to be the safe space. And Meg, I'll even take that a step further. Like mm-hmm. the hardest part for me about transitioning to sales enablement was realizing how pervasive the thinking about sellers was by our own people. We are not problem solvers. We are cogs and you know line items on a spreadsheet. We need to fix them. And so I guess I feel you in that statement. And I... And I don't like, how can I not come back to it or mention it? Like, I'm so sorry that that happened. I don't even know like what else to say. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I think the the one thing I want to to leave with is 
for me, having those experiences and, you know, if we have anyone that listens to this, who has been through experience, it can be as traumatizing as your experience, or, you know, I had a a manager, this was actually the second time I was sexually um, harassed. And I was like, I finally found a manager that really values my work ethic. And that I was like the first hire on the team in a remote office. And so I was like, wow, I found this person who really believes in me, who mentors me. And I was a very young blonde woman. And so even for, you know, I did have a lot of situations with a partner, for example, who I asked him to mentor me formally. And he told me, (laughs) told me, Amy, uh, I'm sorry, I can't mentor you. I'm married. And I'm like, well, what do you think I meant by mentoring? Right. And I was like, Mm -hmm. so also like, I don't think a lot of men also realize how limited women are in terms of uh, professional development when they're young women, right? Because we're seen as dangerous in some way, whether it's men's reputation or, um, you know, that hurt, as you mentioned, it, it hurts when it's from partners that don't really know you that well, but it hurts so much more deeply from the people we work with on an everyday basis. So I had a, a manager who I was working with. I was working so much. I would stay until late night talking about the business strategy, talking about hiring. I even like helped decorate the office, pick out the office. Like I was so involved in every single aspect of this office setup, right? From yes, sales to hiring more salespeople to training them. That's where my career in sales training started. But I also had this manager who took me to a bar after a client event one time and then told me, I've never felt this way about anyone. I'm in love with you. Mm -hmm. Completely unprompted. I had a boyfriend. He was picking me up that night. Like I had never crossed any lines other than being a young blonde woman. Mm -hmm. And I was very proud of myself because the, on uh, Monday I went into his office and I was like, listen, this was sexual harassment. And the response I got was, what do you mean? I was expressing how I felt. And don't you think this is more embarrassing for me than it is for you? And I'm like, correction, this is sexual harassment because you control my compensation. Mm -hmm. You are my boss. You hold power over me. This was completely inappropriate. I have never expressed any sort of interest in this relationship. I have done nothing except work entirely hard for you. And the issue is that what I didn't tell him was that how it it impacted my understanding of like my position and my role, right? On top of just being uncomfortable at work and obviously feeling really conflicted about whether to stay, whether to go, I also questioned every single success I had. Mm, I questioned. So true. I felt so confident about how I was growing in that role and all that I was achieving. And that single interaction made me question. Did he just invest in me? Have I just gotten all these things because I'm a young, attractive woman? Yeah, but he's, it's love. It's love. Yeah, but it's love. And that's just so detrimental. If you think about like, why do we have imposter syndrome? Because so many men literally just, they, they create this gossip. I've had so many people gossip, create rumors about me, men and women, right? And you wonder yeah. why we have imposter syndrome. So it's just this vicious cycle. And I don't think people understand how it's not just that our feelings are hurt. We're so fragile. These interactions tell us as women, we are only succeeding because we are attractive. We don't have a lot of more uh, of value other than our attraction. It's not our skill, our confidence, our strategies. It is our looks. And that is so devastating. Mm-hmm. So any sales boss or sales leaders that happen to be listening to this conversation, um, just because you've never actually done this, uh, <laughs> that when when someone yeah. on your team comes to you and tells you about an uncomfortable situation with the buyer and you express a hint of anything other than we don't need the revenue that fucking badly, get away from them. That is insanely detrimental as well, because it's almost like either not being believed or we don't think it's the pain is bad enough um, or worse it's it's just an obstacle to be endured on the path to revenue and all those make I'm, I'm with you so big on like mm-hmm. it that shit gets in your head right it gets in your head i'll even take it a step further it's not just young women like here's what happens when you get older friends we hear a lot about the confidence gap 
right? As mm-hmm. being a thing that we got to work on with women. We got to, we got to up their confidence. And the confidence gap is absolutely a thing that is a factor for women um, by the numbers in their early 20s. So the, the confidence gap is actually an S curve. I had a peer, one of my friends that taught me a ton about selling there that was like, if you write one more fucking graph on a bar nap, like I'm never bringing you out to see prospects at night again, mm-hmm. because I like graphs. Okay. But anyway, so think of an S curve. When we are in our early 20s, that is when women are feeling the least confident. And by um, uh, contrarily, men in their early 20s feel like they could take on the world, right? Never had never done that before. No problem. I'll be perfect at it right out the gate. But what happens over time is that that S curve reverses. Right. And so there's actually a period where women feel the most confident and men feel the least confident. Care to take a guess, Meg, what, what age range that happens in? Ooh. I'll give you a hint. I don't it's know. It's how old we are. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that makes so much sense. 37, 38. I like feel it. I feel it Feeling. coming. Yep. There's a very distinct look and feel to a person who feels intimidated just by your virtue of your presence. Yeah. And when that person is in a leadership position, and worse, they're unaware mm-hmm. of how their own confidence gap is playing out in, in a situation, right? That this is one of the key reasons why we have made no progress on that leadership gap in 30 fucking years. Same thing. And we're talking about the VCs, founders, down to our leadership ranks, right? This is mommy track my ass, right? This mm-hmm. is this is one of the, the key things. All right. So what is the most uncomfortable conversation that you've ever had to have in a revenue context? Yeah. So um, I feel like I shared some really, really, really uncomfortable moments. So I wanted to change this one up a little bit and sure. And actually let you know that like it's not just about those huge pivotal conversations, the ones that suck, but it's also those microaggressions. So I'll share a couple of them that for me really added up into doubting myself and being really not even sure if like how valuable I was. So for me, one of the small, smaller conversations, I had someone create a rumor about me in my last role and to the point where I went to my boss about it. And I was like, listen, this as a woman, especially like this really impacts my role. And I want like, can you help me address this? He's like, it's just gossip. You can go to HR, but they probably won't do anything. That tells me that you're not willing to create a safe environment for me and that you're willing to let gossip thrive. Um, Another one is that I had a boss who I just couldn't do anything right. He told me in terms of feedback, he was very afraid of giving me feedback because he wasn't good at it. He was like afraid of hurting my feelings, I think, which is hilarious. But he told me that, you know, I wasn't, being personable enough. I wasn't friendly enough. And it really was that, like, I'm just not playing politics enough, especially for women. This is hard because we're a lot of times like not likable, not because we're not likable, but because of perception that really impacts women more. Yeah. Society is conditioned to all of us. The women are Mm -hmm. supposed to cater to the needs of those around them. And so when that person does not feel catered to, then they assign that feeling to everyone else around you. And so when the feedback comes to you, it's like this big, massive bowl. And really, this is one person's problem. But continue. Um, Another one was this is actually might be one of the most uncomfortable ones I've had right around George Floyd. I was trying to highlight to my boss the need that we needed to address this as a sales team. Right. Mm-hmm. And I even went so far, I was like, I'm going to make it really easy for our sales leadership team. I created an entire resource guide and it was even organized by the time, the time requirement, right? Like if you have five minutes, you can listen to this video or this article, right? And I was told very directly, listen, I haven't had a maid in four months because of COVID. I don't have the time to educate myself on anti-racism. That completely shows as a leader that you do not care about DEI, even if you have a DEI program, your actions speak louder than words, even though those words spoke really, really loudly. <laughs> so, wow. I'm reminded there was a Davidson Hang, who was the first AE that I ever saw that started a podcast. He prospected me in my last sales enablement job at uh, Remesh. He was LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. 
he told a story about going to one of the SVP, so his boss's mm-hmm. boss, about how come I never see you or any other men in any of the allyship programs. You get the idea. But it was baller, but you're absolutely right. Your actions speak volumes, friends, speak yeah. volumes. And I mean, I just want to highlight some of those smaller stories to show that it's not just these huge moments, but that, you know, people's actions, whether it's spreading a rumor, whether it's just, you know, engaging gossip and I have been guilty of it. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. those things are so detrimental and especially they're even more detrimental for women. So we really need to address our actions. Mm-hmm. We need to do better. Yeah. We need to. We need to be better. We need to be the change. We should start. Yeah. So much, just start a podcast about that and have conversations about. Yeah, some comfortable the change for sure. <laughs> okay, so like I love this, and two just two final thoughts to that. So mm-hmm. feedback, right? Maybe you've read an article about how data can be weaponized against women inside organizations, right? And yeah. specifically that it's withheld, which is a very, very, very fucking real thing. That said, feedback is a form of information. Mm-hmm. And when you when you don't give feedback, when you give feedback to some people on your team, maybe that probably look and sound like you have similar experiences, maybe can shoot the shit about fucking their lives. Yeah. Or, Where you yeah. feel more comfortable giving feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to give feedback to those people. And so as leaders, like that is not fucking good enough. That is not good enough. If you feel uncomfortable giving feedback to certain people on the team, like that is a you problem. And so look at that, but understand that when you withhold feedback from people, it impedes their ability to yeah. grow or grow as quickly. And that is absolutely a microaggression. <laughs> so yeah. If you're up for it, I have um, I have yeah, the easiest way of giving feedback. Mm-hmm. I find, I don't know about you, but when I have gotten feedback, it's either one of two categories. It's really positive and fluffy and bullshit, or mm-hmm. it is so critical that you question if you're doing anything right. Mm-hmm. right? It's usually one of those right. two. So um, even just recognizing that we as leaders, we're typically good at one or the other. Um, I always recommend, it's just a super easy strategy called three up, three down. When you're giving feedback, try to have the both the person have them start by giving a self-assessment and say, hey, three up, three down, check, three things you think that went really well. And this can be applied to so many things, right? And three things you want to do better. And then allow them to give their self-assessment even before you give your assessment. And by actually forcing yourself to give at least three in each category, I've found that it really helps with people who do have imposter syndrome gain confidence because they are forced to even start with three up and to really see that they are doing some things right. And they also get the critical feedback that especially women were not as given as often. And we don't know as much about what we're doing wrong. So, and at least now we know why. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. At least now we know why. Yeah too emotional. We're going to get too emotional with this feedback. You're going to hurt their feelings. I love that, Meg. I love that. The three up, three down. And as you were saying that, it's certainly, you can always tell when somebody's done a great, like a lot of field coaching, like, okay, let's talk yeah. about that meeting. How did that go? <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing too. Like my reps now, they're like, uh, they're like, okay, three up, three down. So da, da, da. like it's, it builds into a habit. I love it too. Yeah. You That's said it was thing. a check-in. Like we need to build habits. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because um, I've actually had people, they're like, Megan, it's like six years since I worked with you, but I just went to buy a house and I was looking with my wife and we did three up, three down assessments of each house. So it's just <laughs> funny that, you know, this, this habit really builds in like me and my husband have, have done it for a lot of different contexts as well. It's so funny. So good selling equals good living. That's so true. And I'm, I'm smiling. I want to make a joke, but the listeners wouldn't understand that. Like, did those people put your name on the form so that you could get compensated for the, the assistance with their living? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> Speaking of trauma. Yeah. One of my commission only roles. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I know that feeling. Still traumatized. Yeah, I know, but it, it puts hair on your chest as they say. Um, <laughs> maybe not ours. <laughs> I know. Did you like the double entendre there that I, oh, it's all, it's it. a whole line with it. all the men. It's like cliches. <laughs> um, all right, Meg, how can people find you? Yeah. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's an easy way of contacting me, following me. Um, really, uh, for me, I love following people who, um, are really advocating for not only 
speaking about change, but making change. Um, I also have um, links to my website on my LinkedIn, and I am launching a training program that will go, it'll cover everything from discovery through um, pricing and negotiation for individual salespeople, not for huge sales teams with big budgets. So if you want to learn a little bit more, um, feel free to check out my website and to um, set up a call with me. That would be pathtopresidentsclub.com. And again, President's Club is reflective of a mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, So not so which is work hard, constantly learn and form your own way of doing things. Yeah. Right. Take more ownership in in how you sell and how you want to sell. All right, Meg, Mm -hmm. this was a lot of fun. You rock. Thanks for being vulnerable with me on this one. And I, I know that I have a lot to think about. And I, I certainly, I'm going to speak for the listeners here. I know they do too. So Meg, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. <laughs> Bye. All right, friends, that wraps another installment of the Revenue Real Hotline. I'd like to thank my guest, Meg Mishak, for being so damn real and so much fun. And I'd like to thank you too, listeners, for hanging around through the remainder of the conversation. It means the world, and I appreciate you. Do check out RevenueReal.com. There's a new Join the Conversation feature. If anybody has any thoughts or comments or show topic requests, I am all damn ears. Same thing, I'm introducing a, a live coaching aspect to the show, and anybody that's brave enough to get into a live um, account strategy session or deal review. Uh, That's where we kick things off. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you listen so you can be notified every time a new episode drops. Meg's LinkedIn profile will be linked in the show notes as usual. And definitely check out pathtopresidentsclub.com too. This episode was produced by the fabulous Nian Fielder. Thanks a lot, man. It sounds awesome. You rock. And I appreciate you too. (laughs) I'm Amy Rahovchek. This is the Revenue Real Hotline. Truth, love, and joy all, and happy selling.